There are lots of things that we ought to remember. That we need, uh, and we may even need things to jog our memory. Um, I, when I, every year when 9-11 passes, we need our memory jogged. We need to see maybe even some of those hideous images. Um, in this city, certainly, April 19th, we need to be reminded of it. it it's, it's a good kind of a reminder to remember the lessons of the past, even painful ones. That those things that can help us to prepare for the future. Well, uh, today's study is going to come from a scripture text that's taken from uh, the time near the conclusion of the Old Testament story. So if you'll put in your head something like 475 B.C., it's around that time. Now, if you think of, okay, I, I always kind of think of these things in round numbers. So if you think of 400 years between when the Old Testament closes and the New Testament begins, okay, so this was just really a, a few years before that. Um, um, so it's kind of an interesting time in, in the history of the, of the country. The northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722. The south, the kingdom of Judah, fell to Babylon in 586. But the time of captivity in Babylon, um, one writer I read said, the time of captivity in Babylon uh, wasn't a, a captivity period ending in a period. It actually ended in a comma because most of them got to come back at some point. It was, it was uh, not exactly short-lived, but it certainly wasn't permanent. Um, and um, God disciplined his wayward people, but with the intent to bring them back home. Isaiah, who wrote 150 years or so before that homecoming, prophesied that it would happen. Even gave the, gave the name of the ruler, King Cyrus, um, who was to issue the decree that, that permitted the captives to do so. It's interesting to me that um, they're taken captive by the Babylonians and carted off to Babylon. And then King Cyrus, who's a Persian, who uh, kind of had conquered the Babylonians, is the one that makes the decree that, so they get to come back. Now, there were three trips coming back to Ju Judah. Um, so you could say three kind of different entourages came back. Uh, after that decree, the first was in 538. It was led by um, kind of a kind of a somewhat of a king by the name of Zerubbabel. The second group uh, comes back. There were, by the way, fifty thousand or so that made that trip back, eight hundred miles or so. By the way, uh, the second journey came in 458 when Ezra comes comes back to Judah with fewer than two thousand people. Uh, and comes back. So you can read about that story and other things uh, during as you read the book of Ezra. The third journey back was in about 440 B.C., and it was led by our hero for today, Nehemiah. Nehemiah had an interesting life. He was, anybody know what his job was? If you read the first... He was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. I, I only tell you that because I want you to know that I can pronounce Artaxerxes. Um, he was one of Cyrus's successors, and he was his cupbearer. Now, when, when we think of the cupbearer, we meet two of them in the Old Testament. Um, anybody remember where the other one is found? In the story of Joseph. Joseph's um, a, a cellmate was, was a cupbearer to, to Pharaoh, if you remember that. And uh, 
um, Joseph interpreted his dream for him, if you remember that story now. But you need to think about what a cupbearer is in the context of certainly of Nehemiah. He was a kind of a high government official, even though Jewish. Um, this wasn't, his job wasn't just to say, uh, come on, the Pepsi's flat. Get the king some new, pe a new bottle of Pepsi. It, sorry, I should have said Coke. I'm sorry. Um, Ellie will never forgive me for that. Pepsi just sounds crazier. So, anyway. okay, all right. Uh, but what he, he was, he was maybe the most trusted person in the kingdom. Um, some will describe the relationship of a cupbearer to the king um, as being an intimate advisor. Not only did he kind of watch out for him, as is indicated, with making sure he's not poisoned, but he kind of had the ear of the king because he was with him every day, uh, you could argue, three times a day, tasting his food, tasting his drink, making sure he's not being poisoned. So um, that's the role that Nehemiah plays. And if you, if you know much about the story, um, he um, hears the distressing news that even though the temple has been, been rebuilt, um, partially due to the work of Ezra, the walls around the city, the protective walls around the city of Jerusalem are still laying in shambles. And it just deeply disturbs him. He fears for the lives of his people. He fears for the safety of the temple itself. Um, uh, that actually came almost 100 years after that original return. The city couldn't properly defend itself from attack. So thanks to Nehemiah's leadership, that wall gets rebuilt. And it gets rebuilt amazingly in something less than two months after he arrives back in Jerusalem. He asks the king for permission to go, and the king uh, gives him not only permission, but money to, to accompany him. And uh, so when they get there and get things kind of, kind of settled around, um, uh, they're going to they're gonna celebrate that in chapter 7 and especially in chapter 8. And um, the, the people are going to gather and pray. And Nehemiah is going to lead that prayer that begins here in chapter 9. Uh, it's a really long prayer that's included here. Um, it follows some uh, rather concentrated teaching from the law of God. What we're going to talk about is the very end of this prayer. It's going to give us some, some insight, I think, on um, kind of what people of faith do in difficult times and how we need to remember those things, okay? Let's start, if we can. Um, by the way, anybody visiting today that we ought to say hello to? Anybody brand new? Everybody else is kind of supposed to be? Okay. All right. I'm looking. Okay. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, Steve Blair, can I get you? teed up here to start on chapter 9, read 32 down through 37. Our leaders, our priests, and our fathers 
even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves of the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, this abundant harvest goes to the king who has placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Beautiful prayer, huh? And really encapsulates kind of what we're talking about here. Now, he uses a word here, beginning of verse 32, that Steve read for us. He uses a word here that is has lost meaning in our day due to overuse. Our culture has made this word useless. It's the word awesome. What does that word mean to you? Yeah, well, the service was awesome. Okay. Have they already told you that? Oh, wow. So you can expect it to be really good. Okay. Service is awesome, as will be the pizza. Can I tell you something? I've had good pizza. There is no such thing as awesome pizza. There, I'm sorry. That You sound disappointed. The truth is, the word means... To, jo- to drop the jaw. <laughs> to stand in awe. That kind of limits the use of that a little bit, doesn't it? I think. I, th- I think. So when we say, okay, uh, rightfully so, as Nehemiah calls God the awesome God, what's awesome about God? Uh, pretty much everything. In particular. I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Larry, I ran into you today just looking toward the east at the sunrise. Creation is awesome. Um, uh, did you hear the thunder rolling last night? That was pretty awesome. You get it? Uh, our God isn't, you know, the, it's the old... Uh, the old song, our God is an awesome God. Now, what we're kind of hearing from Nehemiah, though, in his prayer, is that the, the awesome thing about God that he's dealing with is his compassion and his mercy to a people that haven't been really doing what they were supposed to do. Now, just track with me a minute. Let's read a couple of verses here. I'm going to go, I'm going to I'm going to read uh, several verses here, uh, beginning with verse 17. Um, same chapter. Okay, they refused to listen, didn't remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you're a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And you didn't forsake them. Look at verse 27. Therefore you delivered them to the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. It's given us a little history lesson here. 
Next verse, 28. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they ruled over them. But when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Verse 31, right before what Steve read. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you didn't make an end of them or forsake them. Look at this. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. You and I are here today because God's compassion to mankind, His grace and His mercy to mankind is quite simply awesome. And we ought to recognize that. If you want to use that word, use it in that context, you know. Not in terms of restaurant service, maybe. Although we'll hear from you next week to see if it really was awesome. Okay. Um, so, it's interesting here. Uh, so, let me fill in the blank for you. The God who is mighty and awesome remembers his promises. He promised to take care of them if they would obey him. Now, it's interesting here. He's not really reminding them of what of, of God of something they thought he might forget. But he is, uh, it, it's important that you and I catch the fact that they're letting, that they are acknowledging here, that, that uh, Nehemiah, as he leads them, is acknowledging um, his faithfulness. So, if you look at verse 33, uh, the truth is, and Nehemiah's calling it out here, the nation has no one to blame but themselves. Certainly not the Lord. He, God, has remained faithful. He always will. Even when they were not faithful, he was faithful. Um, look, look at this verse's last, look at verse 33's last word. If, if, you're, um, if your Bible's like mine, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted, how? Last word, wickedly. Look at the comparison. 180 degrees difference between how God acted toward them and how they acted toward God. Kind of the, kind of the case here. All right? So, in verse 34, Nehemiah acknowledges that the nation has received a punishment that they deserve. The truth is, sin always has consequences, doesn't it? Uh, the devil doesn't want you to know that. He's not going to let you see that when he's trying to tempt you into some pattern in your life. Certainly didn't want them to see that the result of their sin was going to be captivity in a, in a place 800 miles away. But sin always has consequences. And, and here it is. He calls it out. We've received a punishment that we deserve. Verse 35. recalls the Lord's promise. Now, would somebody go to Isaiah 30? I want us to have kind of over, overarching this thing. Isaiah is going to be to the right a little bit. Uh, Cindy, would you get that? Isaiah 30, 23? Um, it's going to talk a little bit more about uh, kind of this issue that's hanging over us here, about God's promise and how faithful he is to it and whether or not he delivers um, um, well, you and I kind of need to kind of get in our minds. If you've never read this section of history, it's kind of interesting. The section of history we're talking about now uh, encompasses um, really three books in your Bible 
Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We're going to look at Esther. Uh, we're going to pull a little bit out of Esther uh, in a minute. But all that's kind of around the same uh, period of time. It's toward the end of uh, that section of, his, of Israel's history. Now, Cindy, if you would read what Isaiah says from a few years before about the same thing. Isaiah 30, 23. You hear this? It's talking about an expansive area they will occupy and how their seed is going to, um, to grow, their cattle are going to flourish. Now, the question is, did God deliver? Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, very much so. In fact, um, Isaiah's predicting it, but he's seeing these days coming, and they really did, did happen here. Um, uh, there's a, but there's a sense over the people of ingratitude for what God has done. Look again at verse 35 uh, from chapter 9. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law, nor they have, pay, have they paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. So the idea here is, is that in this sense of ingratitude, they didn't live up to their part of the covenant bargain. That's what we have uh, been talking about is... Uh, Covenants or promises that God made uh, during different seasons of time to his people and whether or not the people lived up to it. Did God always live up to his part of the bargain? Yes, he did. Did the people? No. And here's another case where he says, you know, what, the place where I brought you to was, was abundant and you still didn't act faithfully. It's kind of the idea. The gift of God had to be received on the giver's terms, not our own terms. Let that soak in for a minute. The gift of God needed to be received on God's terms, on the giver's terms, not on the terms of the receiver. And they wanted to kind of call the shots. So by this time, verse 36, they now have become slaves in what is meant to be their home. That's the result. When they come back, God promised they would come back. Isaiah promised they would come back, even from 150 years or so before it happened. When they came back, they were back home, but as slaves of somebody else. Isn't that interesting? Back home, but now under slavery or under the oppression and literally uh, having to, uh, to pay from their produce over to uh, the, the king of uh, Persia. They've become slaves in what was meant to be their home. Now, let's talk here about what verse 37 is going to teach us. This is really important. What is the overriding cause of this distress? Catch it? Rebellion is certainly part of it, yeah. They kind of go, they're kind of kissing cousins, aren't they? Rebellion, disobedience. They had a stiff neck. Yeah, and this wasn't something you go to the chiropractor for. No, you're right. What you've got to understand is, and what they're going to complain about, and what, what Nehemiah is calling them out for, is their yield went 
to someone else when they got back. The land was still producing. The cattle were still doing well. But when they harvested it, they gave most of it not to the bank to hold, not to my kids for their future. Most of it went to the Persians. They didn't like that. This is my home. And now I'm enslaved in my home. It was better than being in Babylon, right? But they wouldn't acknowledge until now. Uh, and it's interesting. This is not because, according to this verse, verse 37, this is not because those kings, those Persian kings were superior, even though militarily they were. But it wasn't because of that. Then Why? Did you catch it really at, uh, at, at the beginning of, the, of verse 37? Because of what? Our sins. Isn't that interesting? The result, distress, is because, not because of the king, but because of us, our sins. You know, it seems like a law of human nature to blame somebody else for my failure. You can go all the way back, as far as you want to go. Eve blamed her disobedience on the serpent. Adam blamed his on Eve. Then he blamed God, because God had given him Eve. That's not an editorial, that's, I'm just reporting it, okay? Somebody says, I read once of a woman whose husband was prone to blaming her for everything. After he got into an argument with his own mother on the telephone, he hung up, turned to his wife and says, well, it's your mother-in-law. <laughs> you know? It's easy to blame our government for all that's wrong in the country, yet we're the ones who voted. It's easy to blame the producers of television shows for all the garbage that's on TV. Yet if people didn't buy the products or didn't watch the shows, well, okay. To place the blame, we often need to look at me. At you and me. It's just not easy to do that, is it? So, Nehemiah, as kind of a priest here, even though he's not a priest, he's more of a governor. He says, Lord, we can't look any... We, we need not look any farther than our own backyard, than our own selves here. That overriding cause of the distress of God's people is us, our sin. Now, we're going to go one, one other little section here. Uh, if you'll go with me, let's read the last verse of chapter 9, okay? I'll read that, and then we're going to jump over and read another section. Here's verse 38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. I love this. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. So, it's kind of unusual here. The agreement that they're making is a covenant of their own. They're kind of um, uh, repeating or, or um, 
um, coming back to the covenant they've already made with God that they didn't live up to. And it's interesting, what's interesting to me is it seems, if, if, if I understand verse 38 correctly, unusual though it is, the people initiate this covenant, not God. You know, the ones in the past with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and, and on through that we've studied, David last week, those covenant promises initiated were initiated by God. God's saying, I will do this for you. I will make you my family. I'll make you my nation. And you follow me. Okay? Don't have any other gods before me. All that stuff. But those are all initiated by God. This one, interestingly, in response to kind of Nehemiah's prayer uh, and, and this sense of fervent commitment, the people gather, the leaders, leaders of the people gather, and they're going to make a covenant themselves, an agreement. That's what the covenant kind of means here. They want to be obligated. Let that sink in for a minute. They want to be obligated to this promise. They make a promise to, to the Lord. And it's interesting that the leaders of the nation lead in this effort. If you read uh, verse 1 through 27 in the next chapter, which is where we're going, we're going to, chapter, to verse 28 in chapter 10 in just a minute. If you read the list of leaders, these are all people who signed it, said, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. Over and over again, 27 verses of just names of leaders who signed up to make this promise back to God. They signed it and they sealed it. Go to the right in your Bible to Esther 3. I'll start in verse 10. This is a bad agreement, but you'll get the idea. Haman was a bad guy in the days of Esther. And the king, who was Esther's husband, took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman. Haman wanted to see the Jews wiped out. He was the enemy of the Jews. You see that in verse 10? The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also. Do with them as you please. So in verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned and on the 13th day of the first month, it was written just as Haman had commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's Signet ring. I got one of these when I finished seminary. It's a signet ring. It's got a little seal on it. What kings in those days would do, and what happened with all of these leaders back in, um, in chapter 9 and chapter 10, is they say here, we're not only going to sign it, we're going to seal it. Which means that once they'd signed it, they would put wax on the document and they would press their signet into it. Making it kind of legal. I want you to know that I signed this. Here's my signet saying I signed. Dozens of people will do it. Will do it. 
Now, let's, let's jump ahead after verse 27 in chapter 10. Let's see what else they do. Cindy, can I get you to read verse 28 and 29 out of chapter 10? Interesting here, the, the last uh, expression or so of this verse, is uh, verse 28, is key. All who are able to understand commit themselves. Not just all these leaders, all these government officials, but it says also kind of the preachers and the singers and the, and the custodians and all the people who took care of the temple and took care of the gates and all those things. All those people who were in any kind of service. Uh, the, literally, the, the impression is uh, rank and file, person after person after person, family after family after family leader said, we'll sign it too. They didn't have a signet ring. They weren't that important in some ways. But they signed it too. So the idea is, uh, if, you, if you look back, in fact, go with me back to chapter 8. They gather, and, and Ezra reads the book of the law to them. I'm going to read from verse 2, chapter 8. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. See, there's that idea again. They weren't expected to do something they didn't understand. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning till midday, in the presence of men and women, who could, who could, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. He literally read, uh, starting with Genesis, and read through for the morning. And the people who got it, the people who understood it, the people who were, by the way, moved by it because they realized they hadn't lived up to it. These are the people that are signing this document saying, we want to be signers on this too. All that are able to understand, commit to it. And what they commit themselves to, according to verse 29 that Cindy read a little bit ago, is a very interesting word. You don't hear it very much. The people make a promise to live their lives in holiness. Sounds kind of outdated, doesn't it? They commit themselves to live their lives in holiness. Uh, the language here, by the way, that they call curses on themselves. It's interesting. We're going to sign this and may we be cursed if we don't do it. The those curses, just what you got to catch with it. Don't, don't be over impressed with that word. But the, the idea is, it's an indication of sincerity. We mean this. We're going to not do life like we used to do it. They vow to live holy. Can we talk about that word for just a minute? I got five minutes left. I got some other stuff to talk about, but I want to talk about this for a minute. Is that okay? What do you think of when you think of, okay, I commit myself, if you wrote it and put your signet on it and said, I commit to live my life in holiness, or I commit to live my life as a holy person. What does that mean to you? Man, I got to wear only black and put my hair up in a bun. I, I would do that, by the way, if I could. Set aside 
Set aside for God. Okay, that's good. that's a good thought. You've heard about this before. You went to a Nazarene school. I get that. Yeah. Okay. What does it mean to live holy? Walk the walk. Now, see, I love this because if if at first blush I may think, oh, that's unattainable for me. I can't be a holy man. But when Elise says, walk the walk. That I can kind of live with. Not claiming to be something I'm not. But walking the walk. Not just talking the talk. Somebody else, what does it mean to live holy? I'm curious what your thoughts are. My daily choices all day long are made from godly principles, not just what I want to do. And that comes, uh, by the way, I don't have to say, uh, okay, God, I make all my choices today for you. It happens one choice at a time. Really. That's why it's so important to be with him every day. Did you know it's quite possible If you desire to live close to Jesus, it's quite possible, I believe, for you to begin to look like him, to walk like him, to talk like him. I think he died really for that principle so that he could place his Holy Spirit within you. Walter, you and I were talking about it earlier but a person who really doesn't have the Holy Spirit in leadership over their lives. And how, wouldn't you be scared to live this day without the Holy Spirit alive inside you? He has given us that so that we can walk the walk. Live this kind of a holy life. Now, let me kind of close this out. I, I hesitate to use this word, but I want to use it anyway. To live holy is to live different. And I don't mean weird, although if you look, follow me around, you'll say, this guy is really weird. But to live holy is to live differently. Not like everybody else around you. And to live in such a way, to walk the walk in such a way that people will notice, not so that they can aggrandize you, not so that they can write books about you, but so that they will notice God. At a dinner Friday night with a little family that we're just trying to rub up against. And we desperately love them. But they're far from God. And they have little children. I just want them to know there's a difference, you know? I just want them to know there's a difference. I think you do too. 
Now, it's interesting. It's kind of the concluding question here. What would you say was Nehemiah's greatest characteristic? Many, many would say that Nehemiah's greatest characteristic was prayer. If you begin to read his story in chapter 1, you'll, you'll realize that he, when he recognizes that the walls of the city are torn down, when he realizes that, he doesn't go immediately to the king. He starts in tears going to God. He's in tears before the Lord pouring his heart out. He starts there. Many would say the key to Nehemiah's holiness, the key to Nehemiah's leadership was prayer. Here's what Oswald Chambers said. Prayer does not fit us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Can I say that again? Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. I just want to ask, are you talking to him? Are you, um, as I've read in some biographies, are you talking to God as if there's somebody on the other end listening? Do you pour out your petitions before him? Do you give it to him before you try to fix it yourself? See, I've got to learn some from this too. Because I want to be a man in this day and age who is different in a good way. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Join me, will you? And join Nehemiah as we try to make a difference in these days. Our days are no less sad than his were, you know? Bless you. See you next week.